I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello and welcome to Headspace, where we bring together three contributors from this month's edition of Prospect Magazine and ask them, so what's the big idea? I'm Tom Clark, and as the March edition of Prospect flies off the presses, we're here to try and make sense of a world in which, as Tony Blair once put it, the kaleidoscope is in flux. The pieces, however, are not moving in any sort of a way that Tony would have foreseen. Just a dozen years ago, he told his party conference that there was no more point in questioning globalisation than in questioning whether it was a good idea for autumn to follow summer. Today, however... Borders are getting harder across the world and protectionism is on the rise. We ask whether we are sinking into a new trade war. With a capricious and thin-skinned new president in the White House, there are also real, somewhat vaguer, rising fears about the ways in which we could drift towards a real war. And if you see Trump himself as a coup against the state, as some people do, then maybe you have to hope that, that maybe there are forces who think of the national interest and are prepared in extremists to launch a coup against Trump. We'll be asking what American spies, who don't seem to be Donald Trump's favourite people, are saying about those risks. And then we bring the discussion back home. Because as Brexit Britain charts these troubled waters, a lot's going to depend on the character of the Prime Minister, Theresa May. So what do we really know about her? With me to unravel the known unknowns of our uncertain times are The Economist, George Magnus, The Guardian columnist, Anne Perkins, and down the line we've got Prospect's own executive editor, Jay Elwards. A warm welcome to you all. Let's start, George, with you. You outline three arguments as to why free trade was wobbling even before President Trump arrived. Yes, Tom. So the the background really comprises an environment for world trade, which has actually been deteriorating really since the financial crisis. So we've seen at the margin a kind of a steady growth in protectionism. It's not yet been a sort of major generator of of disruption, but it's it's certainly been an aggravation um, and not just tariffs, which are the main thing that people can focus on, but a lot of things that we call in the trade non-tariff barriers. So these mm. are restrictions on trade that uh, governments impose uh, behind their their borders, so to speak, like environmental standards or public procurement and so on. Anyway, protectionism, a steady decline in 
trade volumes really has been evident because of the financial crisis itself. So Mm. that selling goods to Western consumers is not such a great idea anymore uh, as it was, say, before 2007, uh, for reasons that I think many of us understand, because uh, growth is weaker, consumers are more cautious and so on. Um, And a third factor is that the, the spirit of creating uh, general, uh, you know, broad trade agreements between lots and lots of different countries um, has uh, kind of dissipated, really. I mean, the, mm. the last big trade agreement that we tried to do was the Doha Agreement, which uh, after about 10 years of half of which was comatose, uh, but but eventually that kind of died uh, because of the failure to reach agreement. And, and we haven't really done anything like that or tried anything like the Doha Agreement since. Um, So we've had lots of free trade agreements between regions, Mm. but all of these things now, this is the kind of the submission I'm trying to make, all of these things really now hang in the balance because of the new approach and the new thinking about trade, which the Trump presidency has brought onto the world stage. Thinking about trade, uh, Jay, is thinking a kind word, do you think, for the noises we've heard from Trump? Well... It's hard to know, really, whether his uh, we're going to talk about security later, but his security in, uh, instincts uh, and his commercial instincts will follow exactly the same trajectory. But it, it's interesting what George said about there being a, a background sentiment, a background uh, tilt uh, towards protectionism that was sort of out there before Trump showed up. George, I wonder why you think there was that uh, sense already out there. Since the financial crisis, um, according to uh, a monitoring organisation called Global Trade Alert, uh, there have been 6,000 individual um, actions that are restraints of trade um, imposed by countries that are members of the G20. Now, we all I don't know whether we all do remember, but certainly it is a fact that um, at every G20 meeting, you can rely on the platitude about uh, the commitment to open trade and open borders and so Mm. on and so forth. But despite that, uh, G20 countries have implemented a huge amount of uh, trade restraints, many of them that have achieved a kind of a higher profile refer to things like steel agricultural products and um, I mean uh, car tires and tractor tires and the, the reason for this I think is because well really has to do with the aftermath of the financial crisis which is that you know growth is now at a little bit of a premium and industries and sectors and, and obviously countries and governments that represent them are trying to steal a little bit of kind of market share from everybody else or counteract what they believe are somebody else's unfair trade practices. So it's always been there, shall we say, over the last uh, seven or eight years. But about thinking, I mean, I think it, it is thinking, I mean, in the sense that Trump's advisors or some of the people that he's nominated to very key positions genuinely believe that trade is something that uh, is quite different from the way that we've understood it. Mm. We've traditionally, and this is why most economists are pretty liberal about this, because we kind of think that trade ultimately is good for everybody. Um, But the Trump presidency basically thinks very differently about this, which is that trade is a zero-sum game. You can only have a winner or a loser. You can't have Mm. everybody as a winner. And the Americans obviously have or the presidents, all the president's men have basically rallied around this call that America can only rebuild and repatriate jobs and create, you know, proper, you know, living standards for for Americans if um, 
if they basically get to grips with trade and make other people pay for their benefit. And, I mean, what do you think? You know the economic analysis, like people are trading freely, so it must be good or they wouldn't do it. But politically, there is a yearning, isn't there, for something else. People want a sense, maybe, that they can have pride that something's made more locally. Do you understand that? I, I thought that the the... the, the point that I really took out of Georgia's piece was the institutional failure that underlies this decline in appetite for trade and the fact that trade has come to be seen as and indeed it seems to me to be has operated as a as a as a way of helping rich people get richer without consideration uh, for the ordinary man and woman in the street and it's done that because either through um, uh, sins of omission or of commission Governments and supranational uh, uh, supranational institutions have failed to put defending their citizens um, on a par with the process of um, enriching the world. Yeah, I think that's a really good point, and and one which I think is being lost, unfortunately, in the the current debate um, about about what the world's trading structure and and exchange of you know goods and services and ideas should be about. So we probably have to be humble enough to admit that, you know, whilst uh, defending and nurturing and promoting globalisation over the last, you know, 10 or 20 years, we didn't really think enough about the consequences locally. Am I right that it's fairly sort of basic economics that if you open trade with, say, China, a low-wage country in America, then you might expect, yes, things will get cheaper, but that wages might well get reduced because there'd be such a big su- supply an extra supply of cheap workers from China some of this could have been foreseen couldn't it well yes and I think that uh, I suppose trade theorists and academics uh, I think you know, probably have always been aware of the you know the costs and benefits of trade and what you have to do to to compensate for some of its consequences mm. but I think um, I I, I don't think it's uh, – I mean, there, there are two things um, I would say. The, the first is I think when we – in the current and contemporary political debate, and, you know, we talk so much about um, the loss of jobs and income structures and income inequality and so on. If we'd had this discussion about trade 10 years ago, I think it probably would have been quite valid. I think it's been overtaken now. I mm. mean, the consequences of uh, – the digital world and you know machine intelligence and robotics i think are now dwarfing the impact of trade so even if president trump and his uh, administration is successful in forcing um, america's trade deficit to come down whether us companies will bring jobs back home or just uh, operations which are done by machine intelligence i think that's that's a really critical point. Trade theorist then, Jay, uh, George is saying, have understood for a long time that there's going to be winners and mm. losers from trade and that you would need to kind of compensate. Uh, and I suppose you could say that was the Bill Clinton new Labour model. You know, you have open borders, you have trade. Um, yeah, some people might lose out, but don't worry, we'll give them a tax credit. And isn't part of the political backlash that's going on with both Trump and the Brexit brigade, and maybe in a different way, Jeremy Corbyn, that people don't actually want to be quotes compensated with tax credits they want real jobs doing real things um uh, and they want those at home well yes i mean i th- i think that's that's absolutely right um i i think that it's it's quite 
difficult at the moment to i mean it feels that if we're in the at the beginning of any of the substantial changes that george has outlined in his piece i mean these really enormous global economic changes um then we're at the start of that process and it's not entirely certain to my mind whether or not i mean trump trump and his people have spoken at great length about the changes that they're going to bring about about how they're going to take on uh, the structure of the global economy and, and bring it to heel almost. Um, it, it's not entirely certain to my mind that he is going to be able to adapt the global economic system in quite the way that he has suggested. I mean, he there's recently there was a congressional uh, paper that was sent, I think, to Janet Yellen saying that Congress is very unhappy with all of the banking regulation that the Fed um, has signed up uh, the United States financial system to. Now, it's not entirely clear to me that the United States financial system can remove itself from that slew of regulation to which it is subject, like Basel and all that sort of stuff. In the same way that I'm not entirely convinced that the United States can adapt its trade position and adapt the terms of trade that it has with the rest of the global economy. I, I'm not entirely sure that that can be done, although Trump is very you know, powerful and he's very vocal and so on. So, um, I, I, I think that, yes, absolutely, the, the instinctual urge that people have to feel that they work and that they buy local things and they, they benefit the people around them, that's completely understandable. Whether or not leaders are going to be able to, uh, to turn that into uh, viable policies uh, is uh, far from certain. And you operate a, a village store in one of your um, personas, and uh, you must understand this 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 urge to buy local. Uh, the urge to buy local is one thing. The sense of community that's engendered and sustained by a village shop is another, and I think very important aspect of this um, whole conversation. Because the other thing that goes with uncertain and declining living standards is a sense that the place where you live is no longer the place where you live it's and it's not not the place that you're familiar with suddenly and it, you feel threatened by the sight of people who don't look like you or don't speak your language mm. and uh, and 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 I think that that is another important aspect Last of, word to of, you. of of of, of persuading people to buy into globalisation. George, yeah. we know Theresa May takes the view that if you're a citizen of the world, then you're a citizen of nowhere. Do you think that's part of what's going on here? Um, well, I think it's a sort of uh, well, not very covert way of basically being critical of you know, the global elite um, and of uh, implicitly of globalisation. But, I mean, Anne's point, I think, is nail on head, really, uh, <laughs> which, which is that... If the private sector, and this is, goes to the, the big sort of generic question about the consequences of trade, if the private sector is not very good or not very efficient mm. at rebuilding, um, you know, jobs and community life in regions, I think this is what we're kind of learning about, um, you know, the last ten or twenty years as well. Which actually that it's you know places like London, for example, have kind of made, has, has made up like a bandit from globalisation, but lots of other parts of the country haven't. And if there are regions that have lost out and the private sector has not proven capable 
to to compensate for for the losing out, then we must expect uh, and should expect that the government or the state will actually take on a role in trying to um, as a catalyst for rebuilding mm. and creating new jobs. Mm. And you know this requires a completely different agenda about you know education and uh, social policy and uh, employment creation and infrastructure. Um, we haven't even begun to scratch the surface of that, certainly in this country and probably not anywhere else either. Let's turn now from trade war to real war, or at least the threat of it. Jay, you've been talking to a host of uh, rather interesting characters who ordinarily operate in the dark. Yes, I've been walking down some fairly interesting corridors recently and speaking to uh, some of the brothers and sisters of the uh, intelligence world and been having some very interesting conversations with, I'd say, some pretty upset people. Um, in the United States and also uh, also in in Britain, uh, I think the, the 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 crux of it really is that what you have is you have an individual running the United States who has at best a strained relationship with the truth, and then at his right hand you have some very big, very powerful organisations whose job it is to stride straight into his office mm. and deliver him pretty tough truths in a kind of direct manner, maybe that he's not used to, and that some of these truths he will not want to hear. And the confluence of those two things, the uh, the president uh, and uh, his spy agencies, seems to be a pretty unhappy one. And so far, this has manifested itself in a number of ways. I think most evidently, it's manifested itself in the slightly odd things that Donald Trump has said about the intelligence agencies. Mm. He's been on the receiving end of some leaks from intelligence agencies, and he's responded in a pretty astounding way. He's The stuff that came out about him and Russia and him being compromised and so on resulted in him uh, asking on Twitter whether or not we are living in Nazi Germany. And the first day when he went to the CIA headquarters at Langley, he gave a speech he uh, stood in front of, uh, of a wall that is there that is a memorial covered in stars. And each of those stars denotes a, a dead CIA operative. And he took the opportunity to, to stand there and discuss the size of the crowd that had turned out to his inauguration, which was pretty extraordinary. It, it would be the equivalent of the Queen turning up at the Cenotaph and showing off about her latest act. Um, I mean, it's an extraordinary thing. And there are a lot of very unhappy people. I spoke to the guy somebody called Greg Treverton. And up until the end of January, Greg Treverton was the chairman of the National Intelligence Council. And the National Intelligence Council, it's sort of like the Joint Intelligence uh, Committee, you know, the JIC, which stands in between. Yeah, exactly. It stands in between government and the spies. And he was saying that the situation is disastrous. There are a lot of very, very unhappy people. And that if Donald Trump continues to treat the intelligence agencies in such a manner, people are going to start resigning. And um, one point, though, that Jay's piece also makes is that you can go back and you can look at J. Edgar Hoover and you can look at, I don't know, Harold Wilson being convinced MI6 have got it in for him. Are we into new waters here or is this something you feel you've seen before? I think it's um, uh, history is never quite the same uh, the second time around, is it? Uh, so this, I, I thought one of the, I, I love the way this article traced a trajectory of relationship between government and security state um, and, the, and the way that evolved and, sh- and, sh- and shifted. Um, but it's the, the 
I, I think Trump's relationship appears to be completely different to Wilson's uh, problems with um, MI5 and MI6, which he was he became absolutely convinced, not absolutely without um, any evidence either, were, were, were intending at the very least to constrain his political objectives, if not actually to undermine him personally. And I think Donald Trump has a... I, I suppose that's but that's part of his complaint and criticism. But it but it's a mu- it's much more to do with his kind of instinct for disruption. It's one of the really interesting distinctions between Trump and May, who in some ways inherit similar circumstances, which are shaping their policy agendas. But Mrs. May, of course, comes from a security background, mm. and I think if anything, she may be perilously close to the security services and overwilling to fulfil their agenda <laughs> in a way that is not going to be a problem with Trump. I mean, that is interesting, isn't it, George? Like, um, you know, a lot of the time, from the perspective of, you know, say, The Guardian and writes for, the, the, the challenge has been that the politicians are too chummy with the spies and they feel very excited that they get this um, for UK eyes only stuff and uh, they're too deferential to them. Or well, at least with Trump, they've got a, a leader who stands up to them. Oh, well, they certainly do. Um, and, I, and I thought um, that, uh, again, reading Jay's piece, one of the things that sort of jumped out at me and, and putting it into sort of contemporaneous context, really, is what happens if Trump... I mean, I mean he, can, he can certainly put and is putting his own people in charge at the head of mm. the organisations... Um, and sort of getting control. I mean, well, this is probably a rather pejorative way of putting it because all presidents obviously want their own people to run the most important you know, intelligence services and other uh, executive functions. But having done that, having put your own people in control, what happens if the, the body of the, of whether it's the CIA or the Department of Homeland Security or whoever it is, what happens if the body actually isn't really very responsive to what the boss and his boss, the president, actually you know, have uh, contrived to want to do. Um, so, yeah, so that's a kind of, it's a rhetorical question, really, because actually I think Jay probably would have more views about that having sort of done the research. But what do you think? Well, I think, as with all these things, there's, a, there's an equilibrium. What I tried to explain in the piece is that over the past 20 years, the relationship between the spy agencies and the state in both the United States and also in Britain has described this sort of uh, this sort of wave shape where there was a point where uh, immediately after 9-11, the interests of government and the spies snapped into lockstep because it was understood that the United States and its allies would have to engage in a strongly intelligence led ground war in order to take on this new adversary that had so hideously and suddenly come to light. The consequence of that was that the interests of the two became too entwined. They became too close. There was a a former CIA operative who I spoke to who described George Tenet, who uh, grew up working in his family's uh, restaurant in Queens, uh, where the, the, the family motto was always, work out what the customer wants and then give them lots of it. Unfortunately, Tenet took that and applied it to to the relationship that the spy agents, CIA, have with government. He found out what they want and he gave them lots of it. In this case, evidence of WMD that turned out not to be there. But then a, a number of other former agents I spoke to said that after that, the WMD disaster became apparent, the relationship went too far the other way. And the, the sense of mistrust and uncertainty and hesitancy was what was behind, partly behind, it is suggested, Obama's decision not to go into... Syria. Now, we can have a completely separate and very long discussion about 
the wisdom or not of that decision. But the people I spoke to suggested that at that point, the relationship had become too distant. And now with Trump, it's become even more distant and even more destructive. It comes down, I think, doesn't it, Anne, to whether there's a sense of the state as having an interest that's um, separate and somehow above the interest of the government of the day, which is something the UK civil service always wrestles with. But when you've got a man in charge who's very much l'état-c'est-moi kind of in his thinking, um, you can imagine that's going to get quite tricky. I mean, more than tricky, it's, it, it, it's terrifying. It really is terrifying, isn't it? And and you do wonder, particularly when you, you know, there, he has the power to make irreversible um, and uh, planet-threatening decisions. And I don't know whether the security state or indeed the military are capable of stopping him taking those decisions, whether there could be some kind of... I mean, if you see Trump himself as a coup against the state, as some people do, then maybe you have to hope that, that maybe there are forces who think of the national interest and are prepared in extremists to launch a coup against... Trump. That, however, does not seem to be the way that our Prime Minister is looking at things. Theresa May has decided that Britain's enduring interests lie with um, continuing with a close relationship with Washington, whether it's in aberrant hands or not, Anne. Um, And yet, uh, in reading a very early biography of our newish Prime Minister, you seem to take the view that where most things are concerned, she's um, very much a safe pair of hands, uh, takes a steady, long view. Maybe that too is, um, is is what I hope is happening. It's very hard to tell with Theresa May, isn't it? Because she's such an unknown quantity, despite having been uh, six years Home Secretary, the most exposed job after uh, the Prime Minister um, in government. And yet we really know and understand very little about her. I think also that she takes power in the most extreme set of circumstances uh, that any prime minister has had to wrestle with since 1940. And I, I think that is inevitably shaping many of her calls, many of her judgment calls, of which uh, the early visit to America, however it was handled, was, was obviously one. Trying to extract what is Theresa May and what is her understanding of her of her remit as being based on fulfilling Brexit and on her own innate sense reflected in the Brexit vote that actually the time has come to put community um, and place ahead of the economy, um, I I think is something that probably will only really become clear when she's succeeded or failed in years to come. I mean, it seemed to me you were quite keen to give her a fair hearing and suggest even if she was a... um, Remainer, not very long ago. Um, now she's this enthusiastic lever with this agenda that you were prepared to give the benefit of the doubt that there's something to it. And she's maybe a more substantial um, politician than her predecessor, David Cameron. Well, the reason why I, I give her more credit, perhaps, than many of my colleagues at work would is, is because, going back to this question of institutional failure, one of the most obvious examples of institutional failure is Westminster's failure. Westminster's failure to engage with voters, never mind to for them to feel confident that Westminster can deliver or is able to deliver what they want and need. And I think May, quite correctly, understood that uh, in the immediate aftermath of the vote that the most important first thing was to persuade this 52% that she had heard what they said and then she and then she translated it or interpreted it um, to mean what she Theresa May wants it to mean, 
but and I think she's not far out of tune from what we know of the dominant reasons. Of course, there are very many, but the dominant reasons for people voting Brexit. And I think she's right to do that. I, I think it puts her in the most impossible position because we also know that she was a Remainer. Therefore, she took, she believes that on balance, it was better to be part of the EU with all its failings and weaknesses than it was to, to leave it. And yet here she is persuading people that she really is going to deliver it, leaving it. And she is going to live with the ridiculous consequences, the, 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 the contradictory problem of wanting to be in the single market or in the customs union or not, um, and outside the European Court of Justice. I mean, she's set up all these contradictory, or there are all these contradictory and irre- irreconcilable imperatives that she has to try t- to escape from. And, and that's why she's ended up, of course, with the unacceptable hard Brexit. And you say that the, she's navigating it, uh, her way through it, almost as well as anyone could. In that I don't, I The contradictions think... aren't about her, they're just in the I, I situation. Don't, I, I really don't think that there's any obvious route through this jungle... And I think if you if you take as a single lodestar the necessity of restoring faith in the institution of democratic mm. politics, then you're fulfilling a necessary obligation. Obviously, you know, the danger is that she's gone too far one way and she's excluding half the British public. And that is equally disastrous. And one hopes that she will... Um, I'd just like to bring in Jay because Jay's been um, going down to PMQs and writing quite a lot of blogs for us on the on the Prospect website and you've tended to take a rather caustic and less forgiving approach of the situation Jay she finds herself in. Yes I have done in the past I I thought that her her sudden switch from Remain to being you know strongly in favour of, of, of leave was I thought that was going to cause her more problems than it actually has caused her but I still think that uh, there, there is serious trouble for her if she is going to uh, ignore the 16.1 million who didn't vote that way um, and I think there'll be more trouble down the track but as the piece brilliantly I think points out this is a, a, rather, a rather savvy rather adaptable person and a somewhat in terms of her political position, but also her character, a kind of malleable individual who, on the one hand, is, you know, proper home counties, shire Tory. Daughter of the vicar. Is, yeah, daughter of vicar, whose hero is Geoffrey Boycott, of all people. <laughs> but, but, but who also has these, you know, on the, on, on the, the side of, you know, advancing the, the interests of women and women MPs, has a dash of this kind of progressive stuff about her. Um, which, which I, I found rather rather intriguing. So who knows? Maybe she is more malleable and adaptable and shrewd than maybe she appears. There's a difference between malleable and adaptable, isn't there? Um, and I think probably one one of the things that um, uh, nobody would say about her was that she's malleable, um, and that may actually work to her to her disadvantage. I mean, there's a, there's a really nice thing about whether she's being consistent and constant, or whether she's actually driving with uh, she's embarked on a white knuckle ride, unable to. S- to turn the wheel away from the edge of the cliff, which is fast approaching. George, we, it's clear that lots of people in Britain want contradictory things, as ever. You know, it used to be you wanted higher public spending and, and, and lower taxes. Now it's that you want to be able to sell your goods to whoever you like, but maybe not take their goods and certainly not take their people. Do you think Theresa May's charting her way through these contradictions as well as anyone could? I, I'd have to say no, actually. Mm. I thought Anne's piece was... I, I mean, I did enjoy the piece, and I thought it was an, an interesting 
assessment of her character and her development, which I knew very little about. I mean, I, I obviously was aware of her as Home Secretary, but, you know, before she became Prime Minister, I mean, she was just a sort of a, an anonymous, a relatively anonymous person on the Tory front bench. And actually, you say yourself, Anne, don't you, that actually in Cameron's government that she probably would have had very limited future, I think you, you mentioned. So there was a carpe diem moment, and she clearly was extremely clever in being able to exploit it. And that is clearly to her credit, as you, as you point out. Subsequently, however, I think she's come across to me. OK, I mean, <clears throat> I have a kind of a vested interest here in terms of the way I voted in the referendum. But she's come across to me as relatively clueless, actually, about the process of where we're going. And she's not alone. And I think there are many or several other government ministers, actually, who they want to try to conflate a number of different objectives, which actually don't are not consistent. They don't all belong together. And they have a very unrealistic timetable. Personally, um, mm. I'm not persuaded yet that I, I mean, I've, I've kind of resigned to my, myself to the idea that, you know, we are on a path, and it's probably going to be quite difficult to, to pull away from that path. But it could be better. I mean, the idea of global Britain, you know, could be okay if we had a kind of a mitigation strategy. And I don't think the Prime Minister has articulated that strategy. Can, really. I, can I just mm. uh, sort of defend my defence mm. of her? Because the one thing she has done by being so enthusiastically, apparently, with the Brexiters, is that she's given herself licence down the road to say, I can't quite give you what I know you want. How about this? She she may have built herself a platform on which she can plausibly make some some tactical retreats in a way that would be very much harder to do if she was clearly herself equivocal about the process. The problem is is that in doing that she's stoked the fire. I yeah. think she has now empowered the people on the back benches, but, her own back benches, to such an extent that to turn around and say to them, "Sorry, uh, we're not going to be able to do this." Is I mean the, the the cries of betrayal will be, but will be I, but, howled, won't but, but, they? But 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 surely they were empowered from you know midnight on June the twenty twenty third twenty fourth because what a referendum does is empower the media um, and one side of the argument and there was no way in the on June the twenty fourth that any sign of uh, retreat was going to be permitted. I think the way I I'd, I'd refer to it as mandate creep. I think a fifty one point nine percent vote uh, one way has been turned into the voice of the people the will of um, the it people. has it has but this is a mistake we we actually made years ago when we said that referendums were an acceptable way of deciding this policy what once you've said that and allowed people to believe that You've made it so, and it's well, very hard to retreat from it. Well, we're going to have to leave that there. Now, there may be listeners who are less optimistic than Anne about Theresa May's master plan to give herself some headroom. One of them, I suspect, is the lawyer Jolyon Morm, who's written a arresting essay in uh, the new edition of Prospect about his plan and his court case that he reckons is going to give Britain the legal room for a rethink. 
so you can look forward to that. But for now, that's it for Headspace for this month. Thank you very much for listening. Huge thanks to George Magnus, to Jay Elwers and to Anne Perkins. As I say, the March edition of Prospect is now flying off the presses. So you've got all the three essays we've been talking about and loads more beside, including interviews with Amartya Sen, Roger Penrose and Stephen Pinker. So you can see we're trying our damnedest to keep our eyes on the stars, even as Donald Trump drags us all into the gutter. That's in the shops from the 16th, and you can make absolutely certain that you get the magazine and plenty more splendid issues in the future by going to prospectmagazine.co.uk and hitting subscribe. I'm Tom Clark, the producer with Matt Hill at Rethink Audio, and we'll see you again next time. Thanks very much and goodbye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.